Emmy Award-winning producer, actor, and comedian Larry Wilmore is back on the air, hosting a podcast where he weighs in on the issues of the week and interviews guests in the world of politics, entertainment, culture, sports, and beyond. Check out Larry Wilmore Black on the Air on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast. Today we have one of the smartest people I know, um, a twin dad and all of those great things, an amazing scholar in his own right. And the reason I can call him an amazing scholar is because my daddy like him. I don't think you're an amazing scholar unless Cleve Sellers actually reads you and thinks that you can write. So I'm going to start with one of the more critical questions that I've asked anybody on this show, Jelani, and I want you to answer it and then we'll we'll delve into more critical. But what the fuck is going on at the border regarding Haitian asylum seekers? And I don't call them migrants and I don't call them illegal. I call them asylum seekers. What 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 the fuck is going on? I think that's the question. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, because the uh, Biden administration. Well, so here's what I think, you know, the, the most benign explanation for this is that the Biden administration is doing something akin to what uh, the Obama administration did with Shirley Sherrod, uh, you know, where they were too concerned about what people on the right were going to say. Uh, and they wound up making unforced errors as a result of it, knowing that people are really rabid. Uh, about immigration, about people being uh, given asylum in the country. Uh, and that's like the third rail of American politics right now. They've settled upon you know, policy with uh, Haitians that's inhumane, um, really indefensible, and ultimately politically not smart. Uh, and so I think that's where we are. That's kind of looking at you know, that, aside from the fact that um, if we're asking like on the poli- on the political level, I mean, uh, it's a it's a about, continuation like, of it's a continuation of Trump's title 42, which was a Stephen Miller, yeah. uh, which came out of the CDC. Right. Was a, Stephen, yeah. Stephen, the, the warped mind of Stephen Miller. So also, I mean, if they, we're talking about it on the political level, that's one thing we're talking about what's the actual actions. You know, it's it's, uh, you know, Confederate cosplay, you know, or, uh, you know, antebellum reenactment or whatever. I mean, it's. Like and that just that image being associated with you know 2021 in its own right is damning. It looked like a scene out of the Django, but it was yeah. it was not yeah. a Torrentino film. Yeah. It was real life. We'll, we'll get to your book, the the matter of black lives. But one things that one of the things that strikes me is how little the black immigrant experience colors how most Americans view immigration. I mean, mm-hmm. even black Americans view immigration. Mm-hmm. And in Black Lives Mattering in this country, I can uh, I think the the black immigrant experience is key. Can you speak to how we fail as a country when understanding the black immigrant and how central it is to a more fulsome understanding of black lives truly mattering? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, there's there's a lot to this. You know, I, I'll just tell you a quick um, anecdote about a conversation I had with a gentleman in Atlanta. So. 
uh, this was, you know, some years back and, you know, he was talking about, this is African-American, he was talking about, you know, Latinos or uh, people who of Hispanic origin who were coming to the United States across the Southern border. Uh, and he was like, you know, we need to send them back. We need to round them up and send them back, you know, kind of straight on the, the party, the right wing party line of it. Uh, and, you know, we went through a whole bunch of things, but I did say, you know, you do know that uh, Texas, uh, excuse me, that Mexico abolished slavery uh, 36 years before the United States did. Uh, and during those years in the interim, if you were a black person in the deep South trying to escape slavery, you fled further South, not North. You know, so there are populations in Mexico to this day that are descendant of uh, fugitive slaves who went there. And so he was like, so what's your point? I said, you know, he, the point is that uh, he could, you could be saying, send them all back and they could look at you and say, you, you first. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you could be talking about your cousin for all you know. Um, so, I mean, I think that's real. But the other part of it is that we've never, we've had this kind of singular narrative of what Black life in this country is. And it never has been that simple. You know, you have Black people migrating into this country, you know, the beginning of the 20th century, in the 19th century, you know, who are you know, formative parts of Black life. Obviously, you know, you start with Marcus Garvey, um, who in turn, you know, in founding the Garvey movement, uh, creates a rubric that both Malcolm X's parents were invested in, uh, which in turn provided him with his early, you know, political education uh, on matters, or Malcolm X for that matter, for his mother being from Grenada, mm-hmm. uh, or W.E.B. Du Bois uh, having Caribbean ancestry. Or Stokely Carmichael. Or Stokely Carmichael, uh, you know, being of Trinidadian uh, descent. Uh, or if we just kind of walked through, you know, <laughs> this legacy, like the people who are active in in, in integral uh, to our struggles, you know, who have who are part of the West Indian and Caribbean narrative and immigrants from Africa, from the continent, uh, from Latin America and so on. It's a much more complicated picture, you know, when when we look at it and say, like, if we also think about uh, Harry Belafonte, like, where, where are we going to go without Harry Belafonte? You know, I don't want to be Harry, a part of a world without Harry Belafonte. Exactly. Kerry Washington, you know, the, the great actress. I mean, it's it's a, a kind of curious uh, myopia, you know, that we have not looked at that narrative. And we tend not to look at that narrative uh, in all the depth and color that it warrants. I will say that that narrative is explored uh, substantially uh, in our collection uh, the matter of black lives writing from the New Yorker, you know, we have Jamaica. Well, that's a, a natural, natural yeah. transition, <laughs> the natural transition. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk about your new book, because I do want to talk about white Democrats and their blind spot. But I'm going to end on that. Mm-hmm. So uh, why? Why did you do that? I didn't even know you were doing this book. You just sprung this on us last week. I'm still waiting on my free copy. I'm going to buy a few copies, but I'm still waiting on my free copy. Well, it's in the mail. Actually, okay. I'll the address. You should have it's it. in the mail. Uh, why, why did you do this book? And what? tell me what you want audiences to get out of it. Is it a collection of essays or is it all... Uh, is there is there a theme throughout that you explore? So, yes, you know, the, the theme is uh, it's all writing from The New Yorker uh, and it's all writing that is connected to uh, themes of race. Um, or and that, that could be overt, you know, as in, you know, the, the story that I wrote about uh, the founding of Black Lives Matter, or uh, it could be something that's contextual. 
uh, where you know we're talking about just the the background uh, narrative of someone's life and the way that race uh, is implicated uh, in you know their existence. And so, a lot of times there's stories that are you know explicit in which race is you know on the surface of it, and then there are a lot of other stories you know where it is contextual. Uh, but Sarah Broom does this amazing story, The Yellow House, which is you know one of my favorite pieces uh, in this collection. And it's about uh, you know the house that her family lived in and what happened with Hurricane Katrina. Uh, mm-hmm. Her family lived in this house in New Orleans. Uh, and through the lens of this, you know, of course, we're talking about black people, we're talking about black people in New Orleans, but we're also talking about a specific place, a specific time. We're talking about her specific relatives and her family, and it's this, this beautiful, evocative essay. Uh, and so we're trying to look at, you know, as I said in the introduction, I said this is, uh, this collection is not about race. It's about the people most commonly tasked with confronting it. That's, that's powerful. So let me ask you this question. I asked this question of a lot of authors. I just had... Uh... Bob Glauber and and Keyshawn Johnson, who mm-hmm. uh, have a great book about the four African-American uh, football players who integrated the NFL. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a great question. So uh, did this book change your thinking at all on anything, even as someone who spent their entire professional career reporting and understanding race? Most people, when they write books, they learn something about themselves or something else. What What throughout this process in this book changed you? You know, I edited this. So what it entailed, and I edit, co-edited it with um, David Remnick, uh, you know, editor-in-chief of The New Yorker, what it entailed was really spending maybe six months doing a deep dive through The New Yorker's archives and, you know, finding pieces and finding stories and so on. And, and you know, The New Yorker, you know, early on didn't really cover race, you know, issues relating to race, you know, in any significant way. but when I came back and reread uh, that 1962 essay that James Baldwin did, um, mm-hmm. which is basically the cornerstone of Fire Next Time. And I think rereading that piece, I came to understand all of this subsequent writing, you know, writing from Henry Louis Gates, uh, writing from Hilton Owls, uh, writing from Jamaica Kincaid, uh, writing from Charlene Hunter Galt, uh, you know, from my colleague and contemporary uh, Doreen St. Felix, Khalifa Sana, like this, this whole array of work that could be understood through the lens in some way, through the lens of what James Baldwin had written in 1964. So I think that was probably what I took away from that experience. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you read somebody like Baldwin, it kind of leads to my next question, and you read that when you have that element in it, it, it brings me to my next question that I want you to answer based upon your book, your lived experience, you writing for the Atlantic, you know, seeing what's the going on. The, the Atlantic, the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm, I'm sitting here talking to uh, Swerer. 
so, so how do we convert Black Lives Mattering into long-term political power? I mean, based on your writings, based on your teachings, what do you think that answer is? Because when you look at what we went through last summer and you look through the lack of a voting rights bill, you think you look at the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act failing, you look at what's going on at the border with Haitian asylum seekers. What does Black Lives Mattering and long-term political power look like and how do we get there? I I think we take this as a given, you know, that our lives matter. Like there has to be a given. Um, It doesn't mean that you don't have to reiterate that. You know, there are lots of things that should be a given that we have to reiterate. You know, we tell our families, our children that we love them every day, you know? Um, And so I think that we reaffirm that and, you know, that's what this work does at at its best. You know, I think that's what art does at its best. Uh, But the actual work of translating that into societal change, you know, is difficult, you know, and arduous. And we encounter setbacks, you know, if there was any moment in which there could possibly be, you know, significant police reform bill, it would have been this one. Uh, And it was stymied. Uh, But at the same time, I think that these are bigger questions because if there was any moment where we would have seen gun reform, it would have been after Newtown. And we see what happened there. And so I think some of these things are particular to us, you know, remaining in a kind of protracted struggle uh, that, you know, W.B. Du Bois, you know, said, you know, his last message to the world was that, you know, humanity will reach higher heights, uh, but don't be disappointed or disillusioned because, you know, the struggle is long and there are setbacks and there are difficulties. Uh, And, you know, this was someone who spent seven decades of his life fighting against white supremacy. And so I always take that to heart meaning that, you know, these things are part and parcel of, you know, the course of our struggle. Um, and so that's the best I can say, is that we persevere and that, you know, we our hope is that our perseverance delivers because uh, as difficult and fraught and complicated and frustrating as the moment that we live in can be, it is still the yield of all of these generations of people's efforts before us that we have opportunities and possibilities that they didn't have, irrespective of how hard people have fought against us and tried to reverse these things and so on, that still winds up being the case. I mean, that's powerful. If uh, if Joe Manchin picks up your book, what do you hope he gets from it? A conscience. <laughs> you got magic powers in this, <laughs> in this book? I'm just saying. Just saying what, I hope, what do I hope? What do I hope? And what do you and and when you when you look at when you look at the larger picture of your book coming out during this time, and what do you think is going to be the the impact on it on the reader? What do you think is going to be the impact on not just Bakari Sellers reading it today, but Stokely and Sadie reading it reading it in the in the future? You know, I think about this because when we were working on this collection, you know, like a lot of people, you know, last summer we were looking around, you know, at the apocalyptic scenes, you know, that were erupting across the country. Uh, and, you know, the feel that we would feel that we were teetering on the brink of, you know, some terrible abyss, you know, starting at the White House, you know, and the fact that we, we still haven't properly grappled with the fact that the president of the United States ordered a government helicopter to intimidate peaceful protesters, you know, things that we would have declared to be, um, contravening human rights if they'd happened in some other country, you know, some Mm -hmm. distant country on a foreign shore. So I want 
we I think we wanted this to be a kind of guide for the conversation to look at, you know, where we've been and where some really incisive minds um, have have brought us uh, in terms of analyzing these questions and so on. And so uh, there's one piece I think is really notable. You know, Rebecca West wrote a piece in 1947. Mm. Uh, in 1947, she wrote a piece about a lynching in South Carolina. Uh, and, you know, it was uh, a lynching that uh, because of the high profile nature of it and because of the post-war, post-World War II world uh, that the United States was in, pressured then Governor Strom Thurmond to uh, actually hold a trial, which, you know, typically would not have happened. Now, of course, uh, everyone who was involved in this was acquitted, uh, but the fact that they even had to countenance the concept of accountability uh, was different and was shocking for South Carolina at that time. I thought about that piece when I was writing about the trial of Dylan Roof. You know, when we look at him uh, in 2015 and effectively committing a, a form of lynching in the basement of the Emanuel AME church. Uh, and then in 2017, when I was writing about his trial uh, and I was looking back at Rebecca West and going like, these two pieces are in dialogue with each other, you know, across the span of these decades. That's crazy. So as much as things have changed, some have still stayed the same. Yeah. I mean, it's like the familial resemblance of history, you know, but I think that when, when, when we talk about, you know, history repeating itself, uh, I always am cautious uh, because they repeat themselves from different vantage points. You know, Dylan Roof got the death penalty. No one in 1947 was even convicted. And uh, not that as someone who supports the death penalty, I'm not. Uh, but I see that's a different outcome than you know what happened uh, you know 60, 70 years earlier. I mean, let me ask you a political question then, as we kind of get near the end of, of this conversation. I hope that everybody picks up the matter of Black Lives, writing from The New Yorker, um, in which uh, my good friend, Dr. Cobb, was one of the people who edited this book. I appreciate you so much for, for coming on today. But as we see what's going on when it comes to issues of justice in this country, um, we have... We started off talking about what's going on at the border. We we talked about some of the failures that we've seen. And we're, we're talking about history having a conversation, or you, you mentioned Dylan Roof in a dialogue. It appears that we're having that same conversation with moderates or moderate white folk again. You know, my dad always right. talk, has a conversation about good white people, right? You just, the, the good the good white <laughs> folk. Um, why, aren't, why aren't we better or why aren't Democrats, the party that, that, it is has the allegiance of the overwhelming allegiance of black folk reading the room better when it comes to how black folks process what they're seeing from their government and how that impacts how we approach our politics. Because I think that there is a lot of disillusionment. And if it wasn't, those images we saw at the border are going to heighten that. And are we seeing the same thing again from moderate D's that we've seen throughout? You know, history? I, mean, I think there's a lot to this, you know, but I think some of it is aspirational. Like the Democrats who remain enamored of the idea of them being a party that, uh, you know, the Joe Lunchbox working class white guy can still find appealing, which is great. 
You know, there are lots of things, the support for minimum wage reform, the support for unions and so on. But those things have not brought that segment back into the fold in the way that Democrats have hoped. Uh, you know, on cultural issues, they're much more aligned with the right often, at least if we're talking about white people, um, they are. And they've been reluctant to concede the fact that the American working class now is black and brown. You know, that if you were making a working class sitcom, you know, you would likely have a black construction worker, uh, you know, cracking jokes with his uh, Latino uh, co-worker mm-hmm. um, and, you know, going down to the, the cafe that's owned by an Asian-American guy, you know. Uh, and so that's a, a different vantage point that I think the Democratic Party has been like slow to to uh, recognize or accept. The other thing I think is that uh, if you remember, you know, I won't say their name out loud, but you know, we could Mm -hmm. say a certain brand of boot that became very popular with black people and the company having an existential crisis because they were selling more boots than ever before, but they were selling them in Harlem, in St. Louis. You know, in Atlanta, in Detroit, they were selling boots, outdoorsman boots in places where people didn't really go to the woods. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it created a crisis because people had to actually recognize this is where your future is. And we've seen that again and again and again. People have one concept of their brand uh, and they can't countenance that this is actually, you know, where your bread and butter is. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, if Black people stay home, White Democrats don't win. Mm. And even I've also, I also think that we've had the conversation about voter suppression in the wrong way. Um, you know, maybe this is a cynical uh, you know, analysis of it, but I think that we need to emphasize the fact that if they can disenfranchise black voters, they can disenfranchise millions of white ones. Millions of white voters who voted for the same candidates that the black voters voted for. Mm. Where can people pick up this book? Tell me more about it. When does it come out? Is it out already? It is out officially on the 28th of this month. Um, and it is available uh, at your local bookseller, you know, bookshop.org, which is the one that I tend to use for, for online purchases, uh, but wherever fine books are sold. Let me ask you, what's the image on the front? Oh, this is an image that we, you know, we went back and forth trying to find the right image for this book, for the cover. Uh, And what we got was this photo uh, by Devin Allen, who's a great young photographer who's based out of Baltimore. Uh, And this uh, image is an image of a young black man. Uh, He's carrying the flag. The flag is draped around his shoulders and on it, uh, written in the white stripes of the flag, are the names of Oscar Grant. Tamir Rice, mm. Freddie Gray, Amadou Diallo, Patrick Burismond, you know, you kind of Eric Garner, you're seeing the names of people who have been, you know, inducted into this canon of the wrongfully black dead. And so, yeah, uh, mm. that's the image that we went for. We, and we went through a lot trying to figure out what would be the right image for this. And I think that um, Devin Allen, whose work I just think is phenomenal, was, was the perfect pick for us. Well, let me say thank you for joining me today on the Bakari Tellers podcast. We have Jelani Cobb. The matter of black lives writing from The New Yorker 
is out soon. Go grab a copy. Thank you so much, my brother. All right. Thank you. Thank you.